Genius. Is that with the real one? Yes, absolutely. But no. <laughs> Welcome to the first faculty faith story uh, with Dr. Chloe Lynch at the end of the faith story. Uh, There's been no faith. <laughs> give me about half an hour chats with faculty to get the spiritual journey behind the teaching that you get. So. And let's start at the very beginning. Sound of music, methodology, uh, background. Uh, so you, I came to faith at 18. I went to Sunday school. I was taken to Sunday school when I was little. I got seriously fed up of colouring in either <laughs> Noah's Ark <laughs> or Daniel and the Lion's Den sometimes. And I decided that Sunday school was overrated. Um, so I didn't go back. And then I... My dad died when I was 13 and I then went straight into two years of doing GCSEs and I kind of would say I had a faith in God and I looked at that period and I knew that I wouldn't have got through that GCSE years period as well as I did if I if there wasn't a God who loved me. But I was quite interested in what that meant. I didn't really have any conception, um, particularly of Christianity. I mean, as far as I was concerned, it was Noah's Ark and Den, which you know wasn't really that helpful uh, and then I arrived at university in Cambridge which is is and was very very conservative evangelical the Christianity is there um, when I started in my college group um, there were 17 of us so the college intake would have been about 120 17 of us were Christians of whom all but three were men and so it's a bit like being in a male fellowship group, really. I joined the Christian Union, even though I didn't know I wasn't a Christian. I just thought, well, I believe in God. So, you know, people were saying Jesus was the son of God. I was like, nice for him. Didn't really know what to do with that. Uh, but I got involved with the Christian Union, was hearing the Bible preached, and I suppose came to understand the gospel as a result of that. Um, didn't make a personal commitment for a couple of terms because nobody had told me I should. Literally, I was in a college group house party, remember those? Mm-hmm. Out in somewhere in rural Suffolk, the lady Christians from my college. Easter holidays, you've got it in one. <laughs> and they all went off to have quiet times. Well, no one told me what a quiet time was, and I didn't really like to ask. So um, I went off in, on my own in a room, because that's what everyone else was doing, and there were some books in there, and I found a book. I have no idea who, who, who the author was, what the book was, but it said literally in the middle of the book somewhere I didn't read the whole thing I was just flicking if you haven't given your life to God you're not a Christian so I literally in that moment was like okay God you can have my life and then you know when you hear yourself say something and you think do I actually mean that because I am gonna have to mean it yeah actually I I mean that you can have my life and from there everything changed you know I'd been hearing gospel in, in effect for two terms I had a good understanding of what scripture had to say, but nobody had ever told me that it required a personal response. And when I realized that's what was required, that's what I did. And and really from that point, everything changed. So you got discipled initially at university, was it? So no one knew I could come across <laughs> with all these you know, yeah. Cambridge men. I should know you're an Oxford boy. Yeah. <laughs> I had to hold I had to hold my own with like 17 men like you, basically. 18. So nobody knew I'd come to faith, but I grew in faith. 
because I was exposed to good teaching, I suppose, because I was with Christians, we were praying together. So it just kind of happened piece by piece. Nobody actually knew. There was no intentional discipling of me. Actually, about six weeks later, they asked me to be a college rep, which was basically meant leading the college group, but couldn't use that language because you might also have women doing it too. And this was very complementarian. So I was allowed to rep, but I wasn't allowed to lead. And and I I had a whole argument with God about that, actually. Um, I told him it was a really bad idea because I was new to faith and I'm sure there was something about that in the word. Um, but he told me really clearly it's what I was meant to do. And so I took on the leadership of the college group sort of that um, September, October time uh, when we came back, when I started my second year. I also didn't realise at that point that this was such conservative evangelicalism that God was not supposed to be talking to me like that. I was going to ask, it sounds a bit kind of oh, Um, But I just didn't, I didn't have a frame for knowing that wasn't supposed to happen. And God spoke very clearly. And, and then he did it again. So in my second year at Cambridge, um, I'd been going to the Baptist church there in Cambridge Um God started saying to me that I should go to the New Frontiers Church, which was the big charismatic student church. And I had just started going out with Peter, whom I married. And so basically, I didn't want to go to the charismatic church. I know I look charismatic now, but like I was like, I'm not putting my hands up in the air. I am not drawing attention to myself. I'm not doing this. So I said to God, oh, I'm not going because that's where Peter goes. And so I'd be going for all the wrong reasons, Lord. <laughs> and um he didn't stop you know how it is when god is on your case about something he didn't stop so eventually i pretty much said okay i'll go once to shut you up god <laughs> so i went once and i encountered the spirit it's really interesting it's so powerful it makes it makes tears come to my eyes now i encountered the spirit in a way that i never had in the nine months i've been a christian um, that I didn't have a frame for, you know, that my Christian union context hadn't given me a frame for. Um, there was some kind of physical manifestation that happened. Somebody prophesied. I mean, as far as I was concerned, they spoke things to me about my relationship with God that they didn't know. I didn't know that was prophecy, but that's what happened. Um, and I was so changed by this that the non-Christians in my college were saying to my Christian friends, what happened to Chloe? And... Yeah, I mean, if, do I believe in spirit reception, subsequent conversion? No, <laughs> but something happened that changed everything. Um, and out of that, I suppose, was part of what um, prompted me or enabled me, I suppose, to initiate daily prayer meetings in college. I, I initiated daily prayer meetings. All these conservative men were like, no, no, we don't need to pray that often. I'm like, we do, we do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> daily prayer meetings in this college for like 18 months till I left um and I guess that that was fruit to some extent of me encountering God in in that deeper way um and so yeah those years were hugely hugely formative for me in terms of faith and you graduated with a law degree yeah and went into yeah, so I had my first job offer while I was still 19. That's how it works if you're a lawyer and you're doing law. So uh, end of my second year, I did a load of summer placements before my 20th birthday. I had this job offer 
I had a couple of job offers, but I chose this one with a magic circle firm, Freshfields. Um, and I could put off the evil moment for a while because after my third year, I had to do a year of law school. And it was great. They'd pay my law school fees. They'd pay me to live. Um, so it was a sweet year, you know, post-grad kind of professional training year. But then I had to go into the law firm. Um, I had stayed on this path because it was sort of on a conveyor belt. I would have had to have chosen to get off. Like Oxbridge Law basically meant I was going to get a job in one of these firms. And I suppose I, so I'd had a calling within a year of coming to faith to church leadership, but I was also um, conscious that nobody needs a 21 year old pastor really. And that it might be worth going and earning some money first. So to make up for the fact that church really wasn't going to pay me, not much anyway. Uh, so I went into law knowing this was not long term, knowing it wasn't what I particularly even wanted, but it it, it was something to do next. And what else was I going to do? So I was a trainee solicitor in this firm, Freshfields. I uh, spent two years there. They were two really tough years. Um, I suffered quite badly from depression in that period. Uh, I used, I mean, well, let's say it since we're there. I used to go home go to bed absolutely exhausted and I would hope that I didn't wake up in the morning because mm. for me at that point life was not it wasn't a good thing uh but I was in church in that season and, and that was um encouraging um as I finished my two-year training contract Peter and I got married Brenda's first year of marriage I think lots of people do not everyone but it was a difficult first year of marriage I think because I was in such a bad place um I left the city firm after I'd done the two-year training contract and stayed for a year um, because I thought I've got to get out for my sanity. Uh, but I wasn't sure what to do. And a very wily recruitment agent told me it would be better outside of the city. So I should try the West End or maybe one of the national firms. Well, it, the recruitment agent was getting a cut of whatever my salary would be. So it was in the recruitment agent's interest to convince me so I ended up being interviewed by four places got four job offers basically made the decision on which one would let me not have to sit in an open plan office once an introvert always an introvert um and did that for another three years and that was the point at which I then came here after that uh, and actually it was my gap here from the city it was I can't do what I'm doing any longer I can't work out what to do I can't work I need some brain space in the law firm um, anything that I did, basically, if I didn't do something negligent and I got out before 7 p.m., that was a good day. Um, and nobody told me what negligence looked like. Like it, This was not the kind of job where they tell you what to do. They show you what to do. They're like, go do. And then it's like they say something in a foreign language and you have to figure out what on earth that meant and how to do it by the end of the day and don't make any mistakes. It's hard to explain what that's like at 20 one, 22. Uh, I think it forms your brain in certain ways. So you seem kind of a little bit odd when it comes to detail um, and 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 the kind of self-starting dynamic. That's where it comes from. It was sink or swim. Um, and it was hugely, hugely destructive in all honesty, um, which is why I was like, I need a gap year. And I came here for my gap year. I'd studied here through the open learning, distance learning room, but a beauty of the paper stuff. So I learnt my first year Greek sitting on a park bench in Mayfair, which is not the place to do it. Mm. And when I first came here and joined the Greek class, remember Steve Walton? Yes. 
So Steve Walton, this is one of Yeah, you did. So this is one of the previous faculty was was teaching Greek then, and um, he asked me to read the Greek aloud in class. And I was like, I mean, this is just squiggles on a page. This is all this is yeah. for this art. <laughs> Does this have a sound? Literally, it was such a shock to me to come into the classroom and study Greek. But such a joy as well. I couldn't believe that we got to stop at 11 o'clock and pray each day. You know, in no other context that I'd ever been in was that a norm. Uh, and I just spent the whole year really being in total surprise and shock that, oh my goodness, we get to do this. It's the second year of your undergrad. So yeah, I yeah, basically I did the second year, level five was was the that one year that I was here for that I thought I was going to be here for one year. Yes. And were you doing church leadership during this time? Yes. So we were part of a team that planted a church in 2000 and I think it was. So we'd been part of this church. We ended up part of the leadership in 2007. So back to my place. No, no, this okay. this service is um Sorry. no, it's <laughs> so this was a non-denominational context, lots of people sort of charismatic Pentecostal. It was about half black, half white, 90% under the age of 40. Most people had come to faith amongst us. It's chaos. I loved it. <laughs> it's wrecked me for church ever since because it was the realest church I've ever been part of. Um and it's really hard to find that again. So yeah, I was, and by 2008, so the end of that first academic year here, I suddenly was the paid leader, or the only paid leader of a team of three. The founding leader had stepped out of leadership and suddenly we had a church. At the age of 28, I had a church. Wasn't quite in the plan like that, you understand? Yes. So then what's the, the pathway for that? Because you've had a year out and done level five. What's the discernment process, if there was one, or is it just stumbling <laughs> forward? Stumbling forward. I think I just realised one year at LST was never going to be enough. So then it was as simple as I could do third year or I have a first degree so I could do a master's. And I had no intention of being an academic. That was the other thing Cambridge did for me, was to make me feel not very able academically. I got my 2-1. My director of studies called it a solid 2-1, which is code for about 61-62. It's fine, but it's a solid 2-1. As in, you're never going to get a first. You can't do a master's at Oxford because you don't have a first. So my narrative, well, after I came out of Cambridge, was I'm not an academic. I'll never be an academic. I haven't got what it takes. Uh, and so I came here and suddenly realised, oh, it's an entirely different context. I'm 10 years older, I am doing subjects I love, I could do a master's. And so really that was the dissent. <laughs> and Graham beating you up or not? Uh, no, so the, the master's I did was the taught master's at that point. Okay. So I did a taught master's, um, did lots of different subjects, including getting to do Greek to M level, which was brilliant. Was with a, It was part-time at this point I was studying. So the first cohort was a bit of a mixture. The second cohort was brilliant i mean i look now at who was in the second cohort there are multiple phds out of that, cult, uh, right. that cohort oh, <laughs> missionaries all, <laughs> it was a brilliant group um and i was going to leave at the end of that part-time that took three years well i'm definitely going to leave now i'm a practitioner at you i'm done and i took the relational theology class that i think is core these days for all of you isn't it um but then it was optional and I hadn't done it as an option. I probably audited at least half as many credits as I'd taken for credit, <laughs> but I hadn't audited that one at that point. So 
I figured that summer before I left, I would take Graham's relational class and because that way I wouldn't have to pay for it. Otherwise, if I came back, I'd have to pay for it as a visiting student. God started giving me a language in that class for thinking about the practice of church leadership. And I think that's what I've been looking for all along, really. So I did what I never would recommend you do, which was lay a fleece. I said to God, I'm going to go and ask Graham whether there's any like writing on this Trinitarian theology that will speak specifically to church leadership. And if he says no, and if he says there's a PhD in this, I will consider it, Lord. So lo and behold, I sidle into Graham's office, having screwed up my courage because I'd spent most of the time avoiding him because I was terrified of him. <laughs> and I say to him, well, are there any books? And he says, no. And then he says, there's a PhD in this. I'm like, oh, have you and God been talking? <laughs> and so that was then how the PhD started. But I did literally start my PhD with nothing other than I know I want to write about Jesus, the church and leadership. And he took me on the basis of no proposal. Be allowed to do that. Yes. Still on. It took quite a while the PhD because you were doing it part time. So I was part time, so I did it in four and a half, five years, something like that. And you, yeah, yeah. I was leading the church. Um, I was beginning to teach here. I started off teaching Greek. I'm very glad I progressed from teaching Greek. Grammar was a bit hard work. I'm glad I drove on that one. <laughs> um, I taught a number of other things on route, but essentially, practical theology is who I am and what I am. Um, and yeah, here I have been teaching ever since. And uh, from New Frontiers Pentecostal Charismatic background, do you know where this is going? <laughs> I do, <laughs> yes. You're now a Carmelite <laughs> Vice Spiritual Director. Came home, no, I was <laughs> <laughs> really not. So what's the pathway into Carmelite Spiritual? Um, well, I suppose my spirituality has always been quite eclectic. So the best days back in... Cambridge were when on a Sunday I would um, go to the New Frontiers Church in the morning that was the charismatic expression of spirituality for me um, often the CU would get together and have lunch and that kind of evangelical you know gathering with others who are absolutely serious about the gospel and, and the word that was important but then in the evenings I used to sing even song I sang in the college chapel choir so for me I've always had that kind of mix to my spirituality and so um, the liturgical stuff was always quite important but you know I was very clear I am Protestant um and and I am that's who I am I, I self-identify as charismatic and evangelical but this Carmelite strand started to come in four years ago um when I had begun to think I might need a Carmelite spiritual director someone to talk about my prayer life with and I had been reading Teresa of Avila, who is one of the Carmelite saints, and I've been reading her for the last 10 years. And I just think she's brilliant. She's really feisty. She's opinionated. She writes great um, summaries of her work. She comments on her own work and says, this is a particularly good chapter. And sometimes she says, this is a brilliant. I, I just, I would love to get her physically in a room. I think she'd be hilarious to have in a room. So I'd really resonated with a lot of what she'd written over the last 10 years. Um, haven't particularly connected with the fact is because she was Carmelite. Then I'd started reading John of the Cross. Yeah, also really connected with what he had said about Dark Knight of the Soul and how that connected with some of the experiences that I've had. 
finally, I go to a evangelical retreat house and find a quotation on the wall from Elizabeth of the Trinity and think, oh, she reminds me of Teresa and oh, she reminds me of John. So I go and look her up and I figure out she's a Carmelite. That is the point. All shame is mine. I suddenly think, oh, Teresa's a Carmelite. John's a Carmelite. Elizabeth's Car There's something about the Carmelite charism that is what's drawing me. And I think it is that they are the, they are the mystics. They are the ones who are pursuing God um, in a way that resonates with me a lot as a charismatic, but also as an evangelical. You know what Teresa has to say about the incarnation and that, you know, your, your mysticism, if ever it gets separated from the incarnation of Christ, it is no mysticism at all. Just really had a lot to say to me. Uh, and so in this process, I felt like maybe I need a Carmelite spiritual director. God was laughing. I started looking at the Oxford Priory, which is where I could get a director from and um, realized they were offering a course training spiritual directors and just noticed it you know when you notice things you just like oh that's nice god a week later well, it was a saturday morning it was i think it was the first of june 2019 i mean it was that clear to me i woke up in the morning and it was not in my head and an hour later i knew that i was going to be training as a carmelite spiritual director and it was a bit like heaven was just saying you know this is the first conflict now you have to get with the program and so I spent two years training with them, only got to have one full week intensive in person because then the pandemic happened. And that was incredible. Um, utter culture shock yeah. for me because I was one of three Protestants and everyone else was Catholic. And of the other two Protestants, they were both high Anglo-Catholic. So I was like the low church representative. Um, and I, every morning I woke up on that intensive, I felt, you know, when you wake up in a foreign country, and you just totally like everything's kind of not quite the way I expect it to be. And you're just a bit out of it. That's how I felt waking up um, in the Priory. Um, but I made some brilliant friends there. I did a lot of thinking about what I think spiritual direction is, um, what difference Carmel makes to all of that. I had to do that work because, to be honest, if I had written the course like they wrote, I'd get sacked. So I had to do a lot of the work myself, but that was really good for me because it forced me to think through what is it that I understand um, is the goal of the spiritual life? What am I pursuing and what is it that others might pursue and how might I serve them in their pursuit of that? Um, and so that was two years of training. I've been practicing since the beginning of that. Um, I now see quite a number of directees and it's just the greatest privilege. I love I love my jobs. I love what I do here. And I love what I do with these directees who invite me to stand on the edge of their life and just to look in at whatever it is that they're seeing and their wrestles with God and just to sit with them and make sense of that. Um, and it's just this incredible privilege that together we could notice what God is up to in their life and make sense of that. And, and I also then asked, you know, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you want to say yes to him? Because I think sometimes as Christians, we think we always have to say yes to God. When actually, in a way, we've got to be honest, sometimes we don't want to say yes. Sometimes everything in us is like, no, God, I don't want to do that. That's not the direction I want to go. And part of what I do then as a director is help people un uncover the reasons for that. Why, you know, what's going on in you? What is their fear? Is it what's what's the thing that's that's causing you not to want to go in God's direction? So, yeah, just the privilege of that has been immense. It's formed me in terms of the Carmelite spirituality, but also in terms of the practice. At heart, I'm a practitioner. I'm an accidental academic. I'm an academic because I need to know how to practice more faithfully.
you may have answered the last question already, which is how your faith or how your academia and your faith journey interrelate. I can't pull them apart. So I know for a lot of people, you will say to me that you find it hard to read the Bible devotionally when you're studying academia, theology academically. I I just actually don't experience that disintegration. For me, when I read the text, I've absolutely got to read it with the commentaries and the, you know, what does this word mean and everything else. I don't get the commentaries out every time because, you know, life's too short, but I need to know. I need to know what it means. But it also, for me, it is here. Um, I I need to know what it means because I need to know what I'm going to do with it. And that's always my question, I guess, is what am I going to do with this stuff? And how am I going to help other people do something with this revelation? Um, So I guess for me, yeah, they're just, they're not, they're not separated. My only reason for being an academic is because of practice and because of what it looks like to live faithfully before him. Um, And for me, and it's different for everyone, but for me, that does look like I have to write things. And I might as well do it at academic level because I have to I have to think about it about that. So I may as well. Thank you, Sherry. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks so much.